brought to you by the Wrangell Mountain Center and our supporters in Alaska and around the globe. We thank you. I'm your host, Sabrina Simon, Director of Operations for the Wrangell Mountain Center. And I'm John Erdman, Executive Director of the Wrangell Mountain Center. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to connecting people with wild lands through art, science, and education in Alaska. I invite you on a journey through our series featuring hand-picked stories and poems told by McCarthy locals and visitors throughout our 2023 summer programming, all expressing our unique experience of this thing called life. Thank you for joining us. This episode is called McCarthy Made and features stories and poems that represent the different facets and features of what it means to be a McCarthy resident. Before I came out to McCarthy, I can't say that there was really anything that could have prepared me for this experience. I'm a world traveler and have been to many unique places, but I had never been to a place anything like McCarthy. From the way the community functions, to the flux of summer visitors, to the incredibly old buildings on the main street, to the landscapes unlike anything I had ever seen. This place is, is there another word for unique? Let's see, distinctive, idiosyncratic, eccentric, unrepeatable. Yeah, I think all of those apply. For this reason, and for many more, it's so important and enlightening, and also entertaining, to hear from the people that have made McCarthy their home. First up, we have longtime resident Barb Rice, who shares her story about discovering McCarthy as a young woman in 1989. She told the story on the first night of the Storytelling Festival, hosted by Glacier View Campground, a quaint outdoor venue with employees slinging burgers in the background and the Wrangell Mountains in the distance behind the storytellers. Barb's story was one of two winners during this night, and she would later go on to compete in the final night of the festival. I want to give a quick heads up to our listeners for anybody who hasn't been out to McCarthy, or maybe doesn't know what it was like before the footbridge. Barb mentions the tram a few times in her story. Before you get into our small remote town, you have to cross the Kennecott River, Now, you do this by crossing a steel footbridge, but that only went up in 1997. Before that, you had to take the tram. You would get into this small tram car, and someone would have to use the pulley on either end to bring you across. And when you're crossing the Kennecott River, you have this incredible view of Mount Blackburn, Regal Mountain, and the two glaciers running down into the valley in front of you. It is magical. Here's Barb with her winning story. I am Barbara Rice, and I live here about five months out of the year, each year. I have a story about how I found this place. Oh, yeah. 
1989, a girlfriend and I walked the mall together, and we traded books back and forth. So one of us had read Missioner's Alaska, and the other one finished it. And we decided that morning that we were going to drive to Alaska. We had husbands, which we still have, and teenage children, but we had never left them. But we decided that morning that we were going to go for 35 days from St. Louis, which took us seven days to get here. Um, both of us had jobs that we could leave. Now, we didn't make as much money. I sold real estate, and she had a beginning computer business. My husband had a new Chevy Nova, which was a Toyota, small Corolla. And I had a tent, and she had a car top carrier. So we figured we could camp to Alaska for 35 days. So we went home and told our husbands that we were going to leave for 35 days. We both had independent money. So we decided that it was gonna take $1,700 to drive up and back. Now we had credit cards, but we didn't wanna use them because we felt guilty. We just, wanted to, we just wanted to use our money. So we decided we would spend $10 a day for food. So we took off, we drove for seven days, and we got to Alaska. I'm not sure now where we went first, but we ended up in Valdez, and that was the year of the oil spill. And we got there, and the workers, the cleanup workers, were sleeping under blue tarps on the sidewalk. There was no place to pitch a tent. And my friend broke down and said, I can't do this anymore. I cannot sleep under a blue tarp on a sidewalk. So she went over to a motel. She says, I'm staying in this motel. Well, you can imagine what a motel cost in the middle of the oil spill in Valdez. Plus, we only had $1,700, and we didn't have credit cards, so we had to use it. We had to be sure we had enough money to get home. So with that, she went to the motel, and she said, well, I can't do this. And she, at that point, pulled a paper out of her backpack, and it was some article from a scientific magazine. And it told about the place just up the road that we could walk on a glacier. I don't even think I knew where we were going, but she kept telling me the directions and we came. But the McCarthy Road was not the super highway that it is today. <laughs> we saw nobody driving in. It took us four hours we saw a llama in the middle of the road. <laughs> and here we are in the wilderness, and there's a llama, and no people. And this road that was pretty bad with this Chevy Nova. Anyway, we proceeded on, and we got to the water, to the Kennecott River. We still had not seen a soul. This was night, August of 1989. We got to the water, and here was this tram. So we figured out there was a telephone there, but it wasn't a 
public telephone. It was a CD radio or a, what kind of radio do truckers use in those? A what? CB radio. Well, we didn't know what to do with it. There was a name on it that said we could call uh, Chris Richards, but we didn't do that. Now, she knew in her article where St. Elias Guides was. It then was owned by another man, and it gave directions on how to get there because she was determined we were going to walk on a glacier. Well, we got to the river, and there was the tram, and we got on it, and I looked up at the two glaciers and said, this is it. I have got to live here someday. This is God's country, and I need to live here. So we went down where there's the campground. Now there was nothing. We pitched our tent down there at what is now the campground. And we spent three days in August of 89, wandering around, walking up to Kennecott. We saw three people in three days in August of 89. It was wonderful. (laughs) I mean, just wonderful. But I knew I was going to live here someday. I just knew this was it. So every opportunity that I had... I came back for, brought girlfriends. The second year I brought my husband, John, and my 80-year-old mother who camped for seven weeks in a van. (laughs) And I just fell in love. And I've been here ever since. I mean, we built, we bought property in 2002 and we built in 2004. Um, And we spend every summer here. This is a wonderful place, as you all know, being here. Um, And that's how I got here. That's it. The sense of awe Barb experienced when she felt that innate knowing that she had found her home reminds me of something someone said when they described seeing the wrangles overhead during a flight scene. They said something along the lines of, it was like witnessing the edge of God's creation. Witnessing a place so vast, so raw, so untouched, definitely stirs some indescribable feeling within our hearts. Something like divine connection to creation. But living in that same raw landscape can be quite a struggle, although McCarthy does tend to attract the types of people who prefer the struggle over convenience, leaning into that connection to creation. But you don't just have to be tough and resourced to live in McCarthy. You have to be a good neighbor, too. Next, we hear a poem from Mike Murphy describing exactly that. All right. Yeah, good to be here. Appreciate everything I've heard. Um, love it. <clears throat> Living in McCarthy, you got to have gas. I use it for my generator. 15 gallons, three years will last. Fuel stabilizer, I keep it in the shed. 
This year, I got no wheels. Logistics require a well-thought-out plan of attack. Haul supplies from the truck to my cabin on my back. My aching right knee tells me I need a better plan. It's a shit ton of work for an aging man. When it comes to water and gas, I do what must be done. I filled my water jugs, left them beside the road, then opened up to help from anyone. Craig Neal got them most of the way. Nancy cooked, hauled them to my cabin the very next day. Picked up three gas cans at Rollins, got them to the far side of the Kennecott River Bridge, wrote my name all over them, then I just left them there. That's what I did. Biking towards town, I felt a bit of unease. $75 of gas left in public, afraid they may disappear with the breeze. Was a bit easier leaving water by the road, so biking towards town, I felt pressure to find someone to help me with my load. I stopped at the potato and found just the guy. Jarrett said he'd haul him to McCarthy Creek once he finished his beer and his fries. Thanking him profusely, he said, this is what we do. In McCarthy, you help me and I help you. Dropping my gas at McCarthy Creek, my heart was full. How I'd get him home? Something over which to mull. For the next two days, my gas sat by the gate, its new home. I hauled a gallon up in a jug to charge my phone. After softball, somebody said they had supplies and gear on their four-wheeler, but would fit my gas somewhere in between. But when we got to McCarthy Creek, the gas was nowhere to be seen. An unknown neighbor helped without being asked. When I got home, there was my gas. I love this poem because it speaks to something so simple but so profound and so needed in this world and as human beings. I've been searching for and mulling over what home is and what it means for over a decade now in my life. And one of the conclusions I've come to is the acceptance that it means so many different things to different people. But one underlying commonality is the specialness of supportive interactions within relationships. And that constellation of many small gestures between people giving small acts of support can create that feeling of home. Up next, we hear from someone who has made McCarthy his home for 40 years. Someone who is known to provide those continuous gestures of support to the community, Mark Vale. He shared his story, like Barb, on our first night of the Storytelling Festival this summer on the West Side. Uh, my story is about how I learned to eat swamp water. So uh, I rode my bicycle in here uh, 40 years and three weeks ago, tomorrow. Uh, and when I first arrived the year before, no, I guess the year after, I met my neighbor Harold. Uh, most of you wouldn't know Harold, but I could tell Harold's stories all night. Uh, this one was one of the early stories with Harold. We both started into the wilderness in 1984. And uh, we'd, been, we'd bought state land in a subdivision nine miles down the road. We showed up both at the same time in the spring of 84. And Harold and I started cutting in a road into our subdivision. And Harold was 
72, I was 26 um, at the time. Today I'm 66. Uh, so <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, uh, so Harold and I, uh, we became close friends because we worked side by side, both forging our way into the wilderness. And uh, so that summer, I worked on the trail to my house in between times helping Harold cut the road into his lot. And my lot's a mile and a half further in or a mile further in than his was. So I had a lot further to go. But Harold lived in Valdez and I lived in Anchorage before moving out here. And we had, uh, we come to a mutual agreement since he only had to go to Valdez to resupply. And he had a wife that would come out every weekend to see his progress. She would bring supplies in one week, and he would go back to see her the next week and bring more supplies in. And that alleviated me from going to Anchorage to get more, res more supplies. So I would cook Harold dinner because that was my profession before I launched into the wilderness. And uh, every night at 530, I'd go fire up the his stove and cook his food and he'd share it with me and uh, we did that all through the summer of 84 in the summer of 85 I didn't make it out here because I was busy working so that I could pay for the land that I was buying and I had an accident that summer I jumped from a barge to a tugboat as the tugboat was pulling away from the barge and I made the tugboat but only by grasping the handrail on the other side of the deck and not letting go because I didn't want to fall in Cook Inlet. And by not letting go, it pulled my arm out of the socket. And I ended up flying into Anchorage in a helicopter on the 4th of July, watching the fireworks from a helicopter. So that summer was sort of shot for coming out here. And I came back early the next spring in 85, or 80, yeah, 85. And I beat Harold in to the area where we were working, and I raced up the trail to see what he had accomplished the summer before. And he had a little camp with two uh, travel trailers with a little roof over it, and he'd built a little box uh, pole barn around those two camper trailers. And there was a sign on the thing saying, help yourself, but replace whatever you use. And I went inside to see what was in there, and there's a big coal, uh, um, it, actually it was a, a wood stove out of the a train car that had bolted, been bolted to the wall in, a, uh, in the last car in the train. Anyhow, on the table next to that was a box, and on the box was a, in the box was a bag that had been turned upside down on the bottom of the bag. It said dynamite. And I'd never seen dynamite before. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I picked the bag up and turned it right side up, and it had been rolled down tight. And I'm like, oh, so I unrolled it, and I looked in there. And lo and behold, there was 15 sticks of dynamite that had gelled together. And there was all this jelly with big flaky crystals in it. And I thought, ooh, that's kind of scary. So I carefully rolled the bag back up <laughs> and gently set it back in the box. And then I slid it away from the wood stove that was only three feet away <laughs> as far as I could get. And lo and behold, three days later, Harold shows up. And we fell right back into our old pattern of I would cook his dinner and he would provide me food. 
And the first night I was in his little camper trailer cooking dinner, I noticed he had a, a clipboard with list of things to do. And it's like uh, clear the back line, uh, make a fence on the back line. And down at number seven, it said blast the swamp. <laughs> and I looked at that and I remembered the dynamite I'd seen. And I'm like, I really don't want to know. <laughs> so days went by, and every day I'd go down to cook, and I noticed things were getting crossed off, and we were getting closer to Blast the Swamp. <laughs> and then I started thinking, maybe I should know. And I'm like, Harold, I see you're getting a lot done. It's like, but what's this number seven, Blast the Swamp? Are, are you going to use that old dynamite? He goes, oh, yeah, Muriel wants me to use that stuff up. I'm like, well, do me a favor, Harold. Please, please let me know at least a day before you're going to do this. He goes, oh, I'll let you know, I'll let you know. Well, I had a habit of riding my bike into town on Wednesdays because back then mail day was Wednesdays and we only had one plane a week and it was only one plane. It wasn't five planes full of Amazon boxes. <laughs> but uh, I'd come in, did my mail chores, and I stopped and visited my friend Jurgen, and we maybe had a drink or two. And I got home late. And when I got home, Harold was fast asleep in his chair with a Louis L'Amour book on his lap. And I didn't want to wake him up. And it was close to 9 when we would have gotten uh, radio messages. Back then, we didn't have phones. We didn't have cell service. We didn't have anything except one-way messages on KCAM radio out of uh, Glen Allen. And our typical thing was we'd have peaches and Eagle brand for dessert while we were listening to messages. But I didn't want to wake him up, so I tiptoed back away and went back down to my camp and went to bed. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, a ground wave woke me up, followed by a sonic boom. <laughs> and I like sat bolt upright at 6 o'clock in the morning going, what was, oh my god, the dynamite. Oh my God, Harold. What? Oh no, that rotten dynamite. What if it blew his face off? His cat would be up there licking his face if I raced up there. I'm like, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna have a cup of coffee first. So I made my coffee and drank a cup of coffee and then I decided to go up my trail which went right behind his place. And I stepped on a twig about 40 yards out, and it snapped. And normally, Harold couldn't hear anything because he'd grown up being a machinist and couldn't hear anything. But that blast had cleared his eardrums, and <laughs> he heard that twig snap, and he come bouncing out of the brush going, Mark, Mark, did you see my pond? Only 56 sticks of dynamite. I'm like, 56 sticks? Oh, my god. Later, I reflected it. He said 15 or 16. And it sounded to me like 56, because I wasn't close enough to blast to clear my eardrums. <clears throat> but uh, he took me over to this pond, or, or this blast zone. And there was a, a hole in the swamp as big as this portico right here in front of me, like 12, 15 feet across. And he's explaining how he did it. He took an old garbage can that the bottom had rusted out, and he sunk it down into the swamp, and he dipped out all the water. And then he took an earth auger, and he drilled down into the swamp and pulled out a cylinder of mud till he hit solid rock on the bottom. And then he 
lowered the dynamite down into that hole and he packed it with mud. And he, he told me he, he put a two-minute fuse on it. I believe it was probably a seven-minute fuse because he had to run back up to the hill to his camp before it blew. So we're standing there around on the edge of this hole, and all the trees are colored, covered with black muck everywhere. And I'm looking around going, oh, my God. You know, this was a huge blast. And the the water that was in the swamp beforehand was trickling back into the hole and washing all this black mud back in. So it was just this pool of black, soupy mud. And I noticed in a tree right next to me that there was this white thing. And I'm like, what is that? And I reached over to pull it out, and it was a knot of plastic, white plastic, like a white plastic garbage bag. I'm like, What's this, Harold? He goes, oh, I wrapped that plastic in, or that dynamite in a plastic bag before I lowered it down. And so in the blast, it blew the bag apart, and just the knot was stuck in the tree. And, you know, he said, yeah. He goes, when, when it first blew, he goes, it was at least eight feet deep. You know, and it's like now it was only two feet deep till you got to the mud syrup in there. And I'm like, wow, so Harold, uh, what, what was the point of this? Were you trying to drain the swamp so the mosquitoes couldn't breed? Oh, no, I'm making a pond. And I'm like, okay. And it's like, so now there's a real place for the mosquitoes to breed. You're going to have to get some fish to, <laughs> to eat the mosquitoes. And, and I, didn't, I just said that flippantly. Well, two weeks later, he drives through my camp at 4.30 in the morning and beeps the horn yelling, good morning, as he drives up the bumpy trail to his place. And I thought, well, I should go see Harold, you know. So after I had my coffee, I hiked up to his house or his camp. And <clears throat> he goes, oh, come down to the pond, come down to the pond. And, and, and we got down to the pond, and there was a bucket with 10 fish in it, 10 goldfish. <laughs> and it was floating, you know how you climatize the water when you're putting fish in a new aquarium. So I'm thinking, okay, great. Well, he was so excited to show me that he, he you know, got these fish. He picked the bucket up out of the swamp and dumped them all in, and four of them went belly up instantly <laughs> from the cold water exchange. But six of them lived and ate mosquitoes the rest that summer. And, and I was just amazed that he'd done all this, and now there was a pond, which he then built a bridge across and put a water pump next to. And he could pump water up to his house out of the swamp in case there was a fire or something. It wasn't good drinking water. But eventually, uh, he built a garden on the edge of the swamp in nice, thick dirt like this. And his first wife died. He married another gal, Carol, who w wanted a larger garden. So that's a whole other story of the garden. That's when she ran over him with the four-wheeler. Um, <laughs> we don't have time for that tonight. <clears throat> Even though Nick said that if I took one of my big stories and broke them down into eight-minute sections, I could tell stories every night. Uh, but I, I learned, you know, when Harold passed away, which has been like 12 years ago now, maybe a little longer than that, I eventually bought the acreage that had the pond and the, and the garden in it. And I grow garden now, and, and I use water out of that pond to irrigate my garden. And I...
grow squash like this. And if anybody hasn't had any greens, if you raise your hand, there's one. So just to give you some visual context, right now Mark is literally throwing squash into the audience like a rock star throwing pigs. And everyone is loving it. There's more. There's more. Oh, 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 now they're all raising their hand. Ah, Alicia wants one. In case you didn't know, for a lot of people, fresh veggies can be hard to come by in McCarthy. That one was so fresh, it split in midair. Uh-oh. Hey, ah! Oh. It was almost right. One left. One left. Uh-oh, I'm just going to throw it into the crowd. No. You'll have to dig that one out of the dirt. It went in there. I saw it go. Sorry about that. Uh, top's broken. Anyhow, I eat, I eat out of the swamp now. And if any of you have ever had greens at the potato, you've eaten out of the swamp too. to McCarthy, one of the first people I heard about was Mark Vail, the legend. So it was so great to hear one of his stories that night, and also to catch fresh squash being hurled at us in the audience. For all of the listeners who haven't had the opportunity to be out here, I hope you can make it one day. And when you do, I highly recommend eating Swamp Greens from The Potato, one of McCarthy's staple restaurants. Keeping on track with the vegetable theme, we have Michelle Lapala sharing her poem, Northern Cabbage, at one of our bi-weekly Word Jam events. For some of you who were here, you know, in the area around Labor Day, last year, um, you probably remember a spectacular Aurora Borealis. Um, and, um, and it started like at the potato, like during music at like, so 9.30 or 10. And, um, and they shut off the lights and the band shut off the sound. And like, it was kind of extraordinary. And then by the time we got back to our cabin on the south side, and I'd seen... I'd seen the aurora in various places, but not so strong that at the cabin that I could sort of take photos with my iPhone 8. <laughs> and it was that extraordinary that when we got back there, it was still very alive. And um, and this poem came out of um, kind of that that experience. It's called Northern Cabbage. If you open the window the northern lights might walk inside, he says to me, barely rousing from sleep, while the billowing light of night traverses sky and cascading shards. Even as chard persists in the garden, first frost threatens, while cabbage, taking a hundred days to form, 
counts down summer's last stretch, a leaf forming every few days, gripping her nutritious fist, green on green on green. Ground and sky, we live on foot between the two places that know first when autumn swiftly comes, listening for yellowing aspen tops, raspberries drop, rose hips darken. The season in our hands, our bruised shoulders, stacking wood, food, goods for winter, sunlight backtracking south, the last thing comprehensible as he drowsed back to sleep. No wonder we were animists. All wonder, no wonder. Thank you. wonder, no wonder. I love those last lines of the poem because wonder is what it's all really about out here. The interwoven feelings of admiration and witness to the inexplicable patterns of life within these landscapes. And yet deep down, we know, we understand, because we are home in these wildlands. Last, we hear from Wendy Pollock with her poem, Wrangles. She shared right after Michelle that same word jam night, and I wanted to recreate some of the magic we experienced during these events, getting to hear such rich, creative expression back to back. Take a listen. time since we've seen Michelle. Wrangles. Aho. <laughs> Who will speak of the unspeakable beauty of this place, of bird song at any hour, of the purple-green iridescence of swallows in flight, of the mystery of raven, of the musk of nearby bear, of the path traveled in silence by Fox. Her white-tipped tail, sole marker of her passage. You'll have to tell us who that was. <laughs> of the lone salmon's journey home to Clear Creek, a flash of asteroid red in August. Who will speak of the Cathedral of Clouds gathering light over fireweed and porphyry peaks, of the impossible blue of the stairway icefall, of mesmerizing glacial pools, of the timeless universe of the glacier's toe where ancient ice becomes water and mountains become dust? I will speak of this place, of my respect for this community who gather together in council, in song, in celebration, in mourning. I will speak of the simple acts of kindness, a wave on the road, in stopping for conversation, in advice freely given, in restraint and in judgment withheld. 
I will speak of my deep respect for the current elders of this community and of the vibrant new people who have chosen this place, and mostly for the Atna people before our time. May we be humble stewards of the land we inhabit. May we be kind to one another and to this indifferent terrain, so those who follow will know by our actions how much we cherish this place. to the ones who came before us, how we relate to the lifespan of a vegetable or the swampy waters they grow from, how we relate to our neighbors through small acts of support or kindness, how we relate to seeing a place for the first time. This is all part of the connection to place and how we relate to the place, and then how we share that relating with the people around us, finding that complex and yet blanketing network of relationships is what I would call finding home. And it's a beautiful thing to see so many people finding that here, their McCarthy made home. Thank you for listening to episode two, McCarthy Made, of our podcast, The End of the Road. In the spring, one sunny day, my sweetheart left me. Lost she went away Now she's gone I don't worry Lord, I'm sitting on top of the world This podcast series was written and produced by Sabrina Simon with the help of John Erdman. Special thanks to our featured storytellers, our 2023 Storytelling Festival business supporters and sponsors, including McCarthy River Tours and the Roadside Potato. Special thanks to Cole Pompey and Graham Makes for contributing their original music and to Brian Moore. You can go to www.wrangles.org, that's Wrangles with two L's, to listen to more episodes from our End of the Road podcast, or find us wherever you find your podcasts. At our website, you can also help support us financially. You can sign up for our monthly e-newsletter, and you can check out the programs that we operate here in McCarthy during the summer. Thank, Thank you, you for, for joining, joining us, us at the, at the end, end of the, of the road. road.